The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening, everyone. That was a very lovely, nice, warm introduction from Pastor Daniel. Uh, It's a pleasure to be able to be here with you tonight. Maranatha is kind of like a second home for me, Pastor Daniel, uh, so many of the pastors, the staff, uh, Jared, who is just out here, a very close friend of mine. And so uh, to be able to come and share God's word with you is a real pleasure and privilege. You know, Daniel, several months back, uh, gave me a call, and he knew that, of course, he was going to be gone this weekend in Israel, and of course, I can't wait to hear their stories and testimonies and all that God did while they're there in the Holy Land, but he called me a while back, and he said, you know, hey, I'm going to be gone, and so I wanted to find the very best teacher I could to fill in for me while I'm gone. And unfortunately, Danny Ramos isn't going to be teaching until next weekend, but so Danny's next weekend, and then several other people said no, but I'm glad he eventually called me and have the opportunity to share with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, if you want to open up your Bibles there. Acts chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8, and as you're opening up your Bibles to Acts chapter 3... I thought I'd share with you, last year was kind of a strange year for me. I did a lot of traveling and and to some unusual places. I got to go to Africa. I went to Uganda. I went to South Sudan. I actually went to Ukraine uh, last year and was able to uh, minister to some chaplains who are there, uh, who, of course, are in the middle of a a war with Russia, but also trying to uh, bring humanitarian aid and minister to the gospel to people. And there was something that happened over the course of that year and just traveling to some of the places that I went to where uh, coming away from a trip like that, it was incredible, it was convicting, it was encouraging, all of those things at the same time. Uh, But one of the things coming out of a country that's literally at war and you have Christian brothers and sisters who are sharing the gospel and putting their lives on the line sometimes to reach out to their communities, Uh, That can't help but have an impact on you. And coming home from a trip like that, I know for me, the Lord really lit a fire in my heart uh, just to kind of wake me up and to recognize the days in which we're living, uh, to have a sense of urgency to the message that we have to share, that now it's high time to awake out of our sleep For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The day is far spent. The night is at hand. It's time to cast off the works of darkness. This isn't a time to be messing around. It's not a time to be drifting spiritually. It's a time to press into the presence of the Lord, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have the word of God on our lips, to be boldly proclaiming and sharing the gospel. There should be a purity to our lives, an urgency to our message. And these are some of the things the Lord's been putting on my heart. And so I'm excited to get into this section of scripture with you tonight. Honestly, this is one of my favorite portions of the entire Bible, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4. I love this whole story. I love all that unfolds here and how the glory and the beauty and the power of God is on display in such a wonderful way. Acts chapter 3, verse 6 is a rather well-known verse. You've probably heard it before. Acts chapter 3, verse 6 says, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have I given to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. I love that verse. It's meaningful to me personally. 
In a lot of ways, I feel like that's what the Lord did in my life. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was locked down, not going anywhere. And then one day, one moment, Jesus stepped into my life and changed everything. And so on one hand, I can relate to it quite personally. And on the other hand, I do feel like this is a message that God has called me to preach. This is a message that the church is to proclaim. And here we have in the story the power and the authority of Jesus in such full display. There's power in the name of Jesus. Amen? As here you have this man in Acts chapter 3, and he has this debilitating condition. He hasn't been able to walk his entire life. We eventually find out in the story that he's over 40 years old, and he's always been in this state, always been in this condition. I don't know if there was ever a time in his life where he thought to himself, well, maybe there will be a miracle. Maybe someday I'll be able to walk. I don't know if he ever thought that way, but at this point here in Acts 3, he's long given up on any hope that his life could be different, that his life could change. He would say, this is the condition that I've always been in. This is the condition that I presently find myself in. It's the condition that I will always be until one day, Peter and John come walking along to go to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they make this bold declaration that everything he's experienced up until that point in his life could be laid aside, and that he could stand up and walk in the name of Jesus, and the love and the power and the authority of God is on display in such a powerful way. And that's incredibly good news because nothing has changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was power in his name 2,000 years ago. There's still power in his name today. And many people are crippled by sin. Many people are overwhelmed with the effects that sin would have in their life. And there may be part of them that wrestles with that that wrestles through some of the guilt and the shame and the conviction and the regret and the remorse. Maybe there's part of them that would say, well, I wish I didn't have to live this way. I wish things could be different. And I do recognize the destructive nature of my lifestyle, but I don't think I can change. I don't think it can be stopped. There might be part of them that wrestles with that. There might be a part, another part of them that says, well, you know, I find some pleasure in my sin. Though it's always temporary, it's always passing away, it's never really giving me all that I hoped that it would. It never truly satisfies, it's never actually enough. I'm always left wanting more, and yet there might be some part of them that finds some temporary pleasure in their sin. But more than anything else, more than recognizing how evil it is, or more than recognizing some pleasure that it could bring, more than anything else, people can feel trapped, in bondage, stuck, not sure if it's possible if they could change. Not only do they want to be changed, but is it even possible? Is that something that God could really do? Could he really forgive me? Could he really heal me? Could he really change the way that I think? And people are in bondage to sin, crippled by it. And all the while, there's this nagging thought in the back of their mind that one day they're going to be held accountable for their actions. That one day there is going to be a judgment. And of course, we know this to be the case. 
The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Jesus said in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is convincing the world of these things. He says he convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in me. And you see, that's the one sin that can't be forgiven. As a pastor, I'm talking to people all the time who are so worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And you don't know my story. You don't know my past. You don't know how deep and dark it is. And I've done things that I regret. Jesus can forgive all of our sin. He can forgive all of our past. The one sin that cannot be forgiven is to not believe in him. It's to reject him. It's to say, no, God, I'm not interested in that offer of salvation. I'll stand on my own. And then there's going to be a judgment. They're going to be held accountable. And so there are people who find themselves crippled by their sin. There are people who are crippled by fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, the cares of this world that can pull us in so many different directions. And of course, is that any wonder when we consider the world that we live in and all of the pressure and all of the bondage and all of the fear, all of the different areas of our lives that we could look at and sometimes we can find some legitimate things to be afraid of whether we're looking at the political scene or the economic scene or we're considering wars and rumors of wars and what's happening in this world and how it just seems to be speeding full steam ahead. No time to pump the brakes, no time to really think about is this the direction we should be going in. If anything, it seems like the world is sort of doubling down and speeding up all the while headed towards this cliff that they are most certainly going to careen off of. And so how could that not produce fear, anxiety, depression, discouragement? How could it not lead some to the bondage of addiction? And that's the world that we live in. And of course, the longer someone struggles with some of those things, the more they start to believe that lie of the enemy, who tells us you're always going to struggle with these things. This is always going to be a part of your life. You're never really going to be set free. You're never really going to experience victory. This is always going to be your struggle. This is who you are. And that's the world that we live in. And how this world so desperately needs to hear this life-changing message that is only presented in the Bible. That's only presented in the gospel. As the church, we have the message that everybody so desperately needs to hear. That Jesus can forgive every sin. He can break every chain. He can set every captive free. And so this is a message that we need to proclaim this is a message that we need to share with the lost and dying world. And here's the thing. You might be here tonight. Maybe it's a message that you need to personally hear. Maybe you need to hear. Maybe you need to be reminded of how your sin can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. How as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he can remove our transgressions from us. Maybe you need to be reminded 
of his touch, his power, his healing, his transformation. And so I'm excited to get into this study with you here tonight. I'll start reading here at Acts chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read down to verse 8, and we'll get into this Bible study. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And so Peter and John were told they go to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The day started at sunrise at 6 a.m. The ninth hour was three in the afternoon. Every day in the temple, they had the morning and the evening sacrifices within a prayer service that would take place right after. And so they had this visual reminder as they would offer up this sacrifice and the smoke of the sacrifice would go up into the sky, would go up into the heavens, so to speak, and they would begin to pray. And they had this visual reminder that, God, you're hearing our prayers, you're listening to our request because of these sacrifices that are being offered. They understood that they couldn't approach God in their own righteousness, They couldn't approach God in their own holiness or spirituality. There had to be this sacrifice that would be offered up. And so as the sacrifice is going up into heaven, they would begin to pray and they understood, God, this is why you hear. This is why you're going to listen and respond because of the sacrifice that's offered. And I do think it's significant that we're told Peter and John, they don't come to the evening sacrifice. It says they come to the hour of prayer. It's almost as if they skip the sacrifice altogether and they just go to the prayer meeting. And I think there is a statement that's being made there. Peter and John are acknowledging we don't need an animal sacrifice anymore. There doesn't need to be an evening sacrifice in the temple for us to be able to pray and come before the presence of a living God. They understood that Jesus... The ultimate sacrifice has already been given. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's already died on the cross. And he's provided everything that we need to have even greater access to God. Greater than any animal sacrifice, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. Of course, we know from the Gospels, From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, as Jesus was dying on the cross, darkness was over all of the land. From 12 noon to 3 p.m., the time of the day that should have been the brightest, there's this eerie, creepy darkness over the land as Jesus is slowly dying on the cross. It's at the ninth hour that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sin of the world was placed upon his shoulders, all of our sin, 
All of our wickedness, all of our filth, all of our immorality, all of our violence, your sin, my sin, it was all placed upon him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel. This is his love. This is his sacrifice that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And oh, do I love that word, whosoever. That means all of us. That means you're not too bad. You're not too good. You're not too young. You're not too old. That means whoever believes in him will not perish but be forgiven of their sin. And that's exactly what was accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, we know the answer. He was forsaken so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed. And so Peter and John, they're coming into the temple. They don't go to the evening sacrifice. They say, no, the ultimate sacrifice has already been made. And so they just come to the prayer service. Now they do understand there's power in prayer. How could you spend three and a half years with Jesus and not have that point driven home? Jesus was always praying. He would get up very early in the morning sometimes. He would stay up late at night. He would pray throughout his day. Did you know it's the only time in the Gospels where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, teach us how to do that. Out of all of the things they could have asked, all the miracles that Jesus performed, he walked on water, he opened the eyes of the blind. The one time the disciples say, teach us how to do that, it's teach us how to pray. It was almost as if they were able to recognize that everything that flowed out of Jesus' life, that there was a direct correlation to this connection that he had to heaven, this connection that he had to the Father. And so they say, teach us how to pray. There's power in prayer. More so than we know. More so than we recognize. When we pray, commands are being given in heaven. When we pray, angels are being dispatched. When we pray, there is a spiritual battle that's going on. And strongholds can come down. You know, when we read some of those battles in the Old Testament, maybe the children of Israel and the battle of Jericho or the Philistines and Goliath, when we read some of those battles, Understand the same thing is happening today in the spiritual realm. And when we pray, oh, we're engaging right in the middle of that battle. Prayer is powerful. I wonder how many testimonies are there in this room who would say that, you know, I know a big part of my salvation. I know a big part of coming to the Lord. There were people that were praying for me. I had a mom, I had a dad, I had a grandparent, I had a friend, a relative, a coworker. I had someone in my life that even though I didn't give them any good reason to, even though maybe sometimes I argued with them and said things I wish I could take back, but they didn't give up and they kept praying for me. And they would say, oh Lord, open up his eyes. Oh Lord, help him see. Oh, Lord, would you reveal to him what's really going on? And 
the horrible direction that he's headed in and the judgment that's there. Lord, would you reveal your love and your grace and your mercy? God, speak to him. God, get a hold of him. How many of us would say, oh, I had someone praying for me. And of course, you might be here tonight and maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're wrestling through some things. Maybe you're not sure where you stand in your relationship with God or if you know him at all. Well, if you're here on a Saturday night, I could almost guarantee you, you have somebody praying for you as well. You have somebody praying, oh Lord, would you meet with them? Would you speak to them? Would you reveal yourself to them? And so they understand here the importance of prayer. Now, I appreciate the fact that here Peter and John, they're listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus had told the disciples, I want you to do business until I come. I want you to occupy your time. Don't just sit around and wait for me and look up into the clouds and wait for my return. He says, no, be busy about your father's business. And so I can appreciate the fact that here is Peter and John and they say, hey, we shouldn't just sit around. Let's go to the temple. Let's go to the hour of prayer. But one of the things that I love about this whole story is that this whole thing is kind of a big divine interruption. As far as we can tell, they never make it to the prayer service because they're going to go in. This man is going to get healed. A crowd is going to gather. Peter's going to preach. The religious leaders come and they're arrested. They never make it to the prayer meeting. That never does happen. This whole thing is a divine interruption. And of course, we look at this story and we think, well, how good it is that they weren't too busy, that they weren't in too big of a rush. I know that you and I would never be guilty of such a thing and the pressure and the busyness of our lives and our week where we're just trying to get out the door, trying to get where we need to be. How wonderful it is that they weren't too busy, they weren't in too big of a rush, but they stop and they acknowledge this is a divine interruption. Now let me just say, not all interruptions are divine. Sometimes there really can just be a distraction. So the next time your cell phone goes off in church, you can't be like, hey, divine interruption. You know, the Lord had this planned out from the beginning of time. Sometimes it really could just be a distraction. Isn't that what Jesus told Martha? He said, Martha, you're distracted with many things. You're being pulled in all of these different directions. And so how do you know when something is a divine interruption as opposed to a distraction? Well, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, there's really no substitute for a daily relationship with Jesus, spending time with him, filled with the Spirit. Lord, help me know, help me understand. What's the difference between a divine interruption and a distraction? But I do think part of the reason Peter and John, they have a little insight here and they're kind of one step ahead, is not only are they open to a divine interruption, I think they're looking for it. I think they're asking for it. It's good to be open because that's where we say, okay, Lord, here's my plan, here's my day, here's my week, here's what I have going on, but if you want to interrupt, if you want to step in and lead me down a road that I didn't realize I was going to go down and maybe have a conversation or pray with somebody I didn't realize I was going to pray for, Lord, if that's what you have, well, I'm open. It's good to be open, but I think Peter and John are taking a step further. They're going to the temple. 
Not because they think that the temple is this special place where they have to go. No, their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think they're going to this prayer meeting not only open to some divine interruption, I think they're hoping for it, looking for it, asking for it. Oh Lord, I don't want this to just be the prayer service. I hope I get an opportunity to share with someone. And so they're looking for these things, they're asking for these things. Verse 2 says, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Now, it's in chapter 4 that we find out that this man is over 40 years old. It says that every day they laid him at the gate. And so whoever that was, his family, his friends, somebody helped him get to this gate that's called beautiful. This gate that was some 75 feet high with these two large double doors, many people would enter the temple this way. And in a lot of ways, we understand it's kind of a strategic location for him as worshipers are coming in, perhaps feeling a little generous, feeling a little compassionate. It's a strategic spot for him to be set up and asking for money as they make their way in. But of course, an important truth to consider is here, he's over 40 years old. He always sits at this particular gate of the temple, which lets us know it's quite possible Jesus must have walked by this guy at least once, perhaps multiple times during his earthly ministry. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Sometimes we have this idea of the Gospels that anyone who was sick in the vicinity of Jesus got healed, or anyone who needed his touch received it. But here it would seem it's quite possible that Jesus must have walked by this man And he doesn't receive his healing touch. And it's just kind of interesting to think about. What did he he heard about Jesus? He must have heard of him sitting daily at the temple. He must have heard about Jesus. He must have heard about his miracles. And yet it would seem for this man that Jesus passed him by. And maybe he thought to himself, yeah, see, I knew it. I knew it wasn't for me. I knew that God's probably angry with me or upset with me. I was born this way or something my parents did, something I did. And everyone else gets this time with the Lord. Everyone else gets this miracle, but yeah, I'm still in the same condition that I've always been. And of course, we have the benefit of looking at this story and seeing the whole picture, seeing the whole message come into play. And so we realize that part of what's happening here is God's perfect timing, God's perfect plan. Because this man is still here, Peter and John, as they make their way in, now he's going to receive this miracle and this large crowd gathers and we're told 5,000 people get saved as a result. And so we could look at it and we could say, well, that was probably a big reason why they were, God was waiting to heal him because it was his perfect timing. It was according to his perfect plan. And I suppose that is very much true. And yet at the same time, I do wonder, was at least part of it because this man wasn't quite ready, wasn't quite ready to respond. You know, so much of the story that we're looking at right now, it seems to be more about the faith of Peter and John than anybody else. And yet there had to be something going on in the heart of this man. 
There had to be some small step of faith, some way in which he was going to yield or surrender to what God was going to do, even if he didn't understand entirely what was happening. And so maybe he wasn't ready when Jesus had come walking by. But now here is Peter and John, and he's asking for alms. He's asking for money. And of course, you can't blame him. He's just looking at his immediate need, trying to live, trying to survive. I couldn't help but relate to one degree or another because I think we can find ourselves in a similar place. We're just kind of got our head down and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to get through the situation. And how often does God have something bigger greater, more amazing than we could have ever had planned for ourselves, just like he has in store for this man. Says in verse four, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Peter says, I want you to look at us. I want you to fix your eyes. I want to have your full attention, Peter is saying to this man. And I think there's a couple of reasons why he's doing that. There's a crowd. There's lots of people coming and going. And so he says, I want your full attention because I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I don't want you to miss it. When I say, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, I want you to hear that. You see, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. There is something powerful when we hear God's word and it can defy everything that we experienced up until that point. He should not be able to stand up. He should not be able to walk. But when he hears those words in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, here's an opportunity for that spark of faith to take place in his heart. And of course, the same is true for all of us. We can be lost, we can be overwhelmed, we can be caught up in the things of this world, we can be so convinced, I'm trapped, I'm in bondage, I could never be forgiven, I could never be set free. And then we hear about the power that's in the name of Jesus and how he can break chains and how he can set us free and forgive us of our sins. And that spark of faith can be ignited in our hearts as well. And so he says, I want you to look at me. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. But I think there's another reason that Peter says, I want you to look at me. Not only do I want you to hear what I'm about to say, I want you to see the look on my face. Does it look like I'm joking? Does it look like I'm doubting? Does it look like I don't believe this with every fiber of my being? Because you see, that kind of faith is contagious. You get around someone like that who's been in the presence of the Lord, who knows the Lord and loves the Lord and knows of his power, knows of his might and his majesty. Oh, that kind of faith is contagious. There can be a spark from that kind of faith as well. I think it's so important to remember as we're ministering to our friends, our family, as we're hoping that they take hold of the scriptures, that they take hold of the promises of God and claim them as their own, we have to ask ourselves, is this a reality in my life? Is this something that I truly believe? Peter says, go ahead, look at me. I want you to know that I believe with all of my heart that Jesus can touch you 
in this moment right here and right now. And so now as he has the full attention of this man, verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Peter is certainly exercising this whole idea of praying without ceasing. He's going to a prayer meeting, but clearly he's praying without ceasing. Clearly he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's listening to what God has for him in that moment and what he's supposed to say. And he makes this bold declaration, this power, this authority that's in the name of Jesus. There's power in the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And how the world might laugh, and how the world might mock, and how the world tries to scorn us and say, Oh, you can't share the gospel with people. You can't talk about Jesus and the cross, and that's so outdated and not relevant. Let them mock, let them laugh, let them scorn. There's power in that message. There's power in that message, and it can resonate in the hearts of men and women. The Holy Spirit is convincing them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when we share that simple truth, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The penalty for sin is death, but Jesus took your place. Jesus took the punishment that you deserve. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He could come into your life today. Oh, there's power in that message. And he's boldly making this declaration to this man who's going to have to have a decision to make. He says, I don't have any money for you. I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I give unto you. You know, there's a very simple statement that carries a profound truth. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give out what you don't actually possess. And the truth of the matter is that for all of us, we're surrounded by people who can be very needy. They need time. They need patience. They need love. They need mercy. They need compassion. What they need more than anything else, whether they realize it or not, is they need Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt unqualified or unprepared. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where maybe somebody had a question about the Bible or a question about Christianity. Or they're going through some crisis and they're looking for hope. They're looking for encouragement. They're looking for power. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you said, I don't know if I'm really qualified. I don't know if I'm really prepared. Not just because it's a question that you don't know what the answer is, but perhaps you feel like in my own life, I'm so far from the Lord. In my own life, I've got my own struggles and problems and I'm not really walking with him. And it's true, you can't give what you don't have. Now, on one hand, we're never going to lose Jesus if he comes into your life. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. I remember when I was five years old and somebody was explaining the gospel to me. And they said, you know, you need to invite Jesus to come and live in your heart. 
Now, five-year-olds can be quite literal. And so as I'm thinking about Jesus living in my heart, what I pictured was this little tiny one-inch Jesus, and he was literally living in my heart. And I, and I thought, okay, I've invited him in, and, and he's got a little room in there, and that's where he lives. But then I thought to myself, but if I sin and I disobey my parents and I do something that's wrong, he's probably going to leave. And I would visualize Jesus running out of my heart. And as a little five-year-old, wait, no, Jesus, come back. You know, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. If he comes into your life, then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You belong to him. But isn't it true that even as a Christian, we can walk according to the Spirit or we can walk according to the flesh? Sometimes we really can be a little too earthly-minded and lean only on our own understanding. You know, there's a famous story of an Italian priest named Thomas Aquinas, and he lived in the 1200s. And if you're familiar with that portion of history, then you know that for the church, it wasn't exactly the best time. For the church in the 1200s, there was a lot of earthly power, but not a lot of heavenly power. And there's this famous story of this priest, Thomas Aquinas, and he walks in on the Pope who's in the treasury. And there's all of this money and silver and gold and treasure. And the Pope says to Thomas, no longer can the church say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas replied, well, that's true, Holy Father, but neither can she say to the lame man, rise up and walk. At a time when there was all of this earthly power and wisdom and knowledge, there wasn't a lot of heavenly power. I think it's time to shed any aspect of cultural Christianity, traditional you know, Christianity that, that doesn't have any power, that doesn't have the blood of Jesus, that doesn't have repentance of sin, that doesn't have the Holy Spirit being poured out, that doesn't have the truth of God's word. It's time to shed away any cultural aspect of Christianity that's void of those things because we want to walk in the fullness. We want to walk in the blessing. We want to walk in all that God has made available to us. And this world so desperately needs Jesus. Peter says, hey, I don't have any money for you. I don't have any resources for you. And I'm fine with money, by the way. I'm fine with resources. They all have their place. But Peter says, no, that's not it. You know what I have you know what's dwelling richly in me. You know this message that I have to share and declare. Here's what I have for you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And this incredible miracle takes place. It says that immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. These are medical terms. It's only used here and nowhere else in Scripture. It reminds us of the fact that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a doctor. He was a physician. I would imagine he was particularly interested in some of these physical miracles as a doctor, just thinking of how impossible that is. Here, this man, he's never walked before. And so no surgery, no correction, no physical therapy, just in a moment, all of these tendons and muscles and bones popping together and he went from being collapsed on the ground to running and leaping and praising God. And of course, it is in this passage that we do have to stop and acknowledge that a literal, physical healing took place. And so while we've had quite an emphasis tonight in this particular study as it relates to spiritual healing, 
and being forgiven of sin and being set free and having chains in our life broken and really walking in all of the victory that God has made available to us. But it is worth noting this is all about a literal physical healing. That was something that God did back then. That's something that God still does today. It's something that the church is supposed to be asking for, supposed to be praying for. And listen, the power is in the name of Jesus. It's not in yelling. It's not in shouting. It's not in coming up with some clever speech, you know, some old English words, some rehearsed prayer that's so beautiful and so poetic as if we're going to sort of trick God into doing it. You know, God hears our amazing prayer and is just like, wow, I wasn't going to heal him, but now I have to. You know, that was a pretty good prayer. That's not where the power is. The power is in the name of Jesus. And I think the more simple we can be, the bigger the prayer is, keep it simple. Don't let it be in your many words. Let it be in the powerful name of Jesus And this healing takes place in his life, and it's immediate, and it's undeniable, and there's a miracle, and no one can deny it. This man, he had been there his whole life. They all knew him. They knew it couldn't be a trick. There's an undeniable miracle that takes place. And of course, again, the man had been in that condition for over 40 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to get discouraged, to be disheartened. To feel like nothing's ever going to change. I'm never going to experience any of the blessings that you're talking about. Maybe he felt like Jesus already passed me by. I had my moment. I had my chance. And I guess I missed it. And so I'm always going to be in this place. And yet here, there's this bold declaration that was made. Here, there's this divine appointment. This is the day for this man that he is going to experience the touch of God. He woke up in the morning and he didn't know, but he's there at this gate called Beautiful and there's this appointed time for him to meet with Jesus and his life is going to be forever changed. And yet I think to myself, what if he would have refused as Peter stretches out his hand and is going to lift him up? What if he refused What if he said, get away from me? What's the matter with you? Don't you see the condition that I'm in? Why would you say such a thing? Don't you know I would get up and walk if I was capable of doing that? How cruel. Why would you say that? Would have been easy for him to list off all of these valid reasons and excuses why there was going to be no miracle, why nothing was going to happen, why he was going to stay in that place Many valid reasons he could have come up with. And yet, instead, he simply yields. He surrenders. He says, God, whatever it is that you want to do, whatever it is that you have in store for me, I don't fully understand it, but God, I want to surrender to you. And he experiences this incredible healing. And I think for us who are here gathered tonight, couldn't we just like this man come up with all kinds of reasons why somehow we are the ones on the outside. Oh, all of that might be true for them, but it's not true for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my addictions. You don't know my bondage. 
You don't know how long I've been wrestling with these things. And we could come up with all of the excuses and all of the reasons that this man could have. Or we can simply yield and surrender and say, okay, Lord, I don't have it all figured out, but whatever it is that you have for me, because here's the thing. I know that God is speaking to some of you. I know that he's touching your heart. I know God is speaking to some of you about getting right with him, whether that's for the very first time. Did you know that when one sinner turns to God, there's a party and a celebration that takes place in heaven? You know what that means? That means if you're here tonight, if there's even one person who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the attention of heaven is on you because God loves you and he cares about you and he sent his son to die for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's conquered sin and he's conquered death. And so maybe God is speaking to you. Today is the day. This is your appointed time. Don't let it pass you by. It's time to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. You might be here tonight and maybe you know the Lord and maybe you've been a Christian for years, but perhaps you've allowed some things into your life that shouldn't be. Some compromise, backsliding, taking your eyes off of the Lord, drifting in your relationship from him. And God's been speaking to you about recommitting your life, about coming once again back to the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus. To come back to your first love, where it was so simple, it was so easy. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. I once was blind, but now I see. And when Christianity gets more complicated than that, sometimes the Lord is knocking on the door of our heart and he's saying, I want you to come back. I want you to come back to that simple relationship. You might be here tonight, and maybe you're overwhelmed by fear, or depression, or anxiety, or addiction of some kind, and you're in bondage to it, and it's been a part of your life, and the Lord's been speaking to you and touching your heart. This is an opportunity for us to respond to him. This is an opportunity for us to recognize it's no mistake that we're here. It's no mistake that you've been gathered in, that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. But here's what I can say with all boldness and confidence. As much as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, the devil hates you and he wants to destroy you. The Bible says he's a liar and the father of lies. He wants to rob, he wants to steal, and he wants to destroy. And you can be sitting here in a message and knowing that God is speaking to you. And then we come to some part where there's an opportunity to respond and the devil starts working overtime and he says, oh, don't listen. That's not for you. God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God doesn't know, God can't change, God can't transform. These are lies from the pit of hell God loves you. He has a plan for you. And he wants to pour out his love and his blessing, his forgiveness and his mercy on each one. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.